Amen. Please remain standing as we read the word of God out of Second Chronicles. These are the words of God. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 50 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. And he raised up altars for the Baals, and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying and used witchcraft and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I'll not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, we read these verses and we think that this is a, of a, a, an issue of far away. But Father, it surrounds us even today. Father, give us wisdom to know how we address these things. How should we then live? How should we then address the nation? Father, embolden us with your word and your spirit. Protect us now as we study your word. Keep us from error. Keep us from importing things to the text. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I remember reading these verses uh, early on. I remember where I was when I was reading them. And I was, uh, I was horrified at the thought of mothers and fathers allowing their children to pass into the fire. I read a little bit more on it. It turns out they were sacrificing their children to Molech. Molech was this humongous statue that had this pit in the front of it, uh, a pit of fire, and they would uh, throw their unwanted children into the, into the pit. That not being bad enough, they had to play music really loud to drown out the screams of their children when they did this. And I thought, how could somebody do that? I probably had been a Christian for four or five months, and it dawned on me that this is no different than what we're doing today. I heard Doug Wilson preach a sermon uh, within a month or so of that, and I was thankful for it because it then became a foundation of things for me in understanding uh, the, the topic of abortion. I'm sorry that we have to speak on abortion. It, I actually am uh, dismayed that we have to ha actually have to teach that it's wrong to uh, kill unborn children. It, it's it's amazing that we have representatives that we can call and contact them and tell them, hey, vote this way or that. But it's not a blessing that we have to call them and tell them, hey, vote against killing children. We can do that, but it's a, it's a shame that we have to, that we have to call them and tell them to do that. Uh, even a, a brand new Christian in the faith for a week or so knows that it's wrong to kill grandma for her money. But, and we don't have to teach it, but it, it's amazing that we have to teach these things, so we do. But it's also interesting to, to note that these people are no different than we are. The people that Manasseh had, had deceived, who, who the scripture says he, they had, he had seduced them, 
Their flesh is the same as our flesh. Their heart is the same as our heart. And but for the grace of God and the mercy of God, who have given us his spirit and made us alive in Christ, we could easily do these same things. These, this, we're no different. And that's important to remember as we are engaging the world, as we're engaging people on this topic of abortion, is we're not fighting against orcs. They're not Klingons. They're not Urukai. They're not aliens. We don't, we don't gain anything in our argument by turning our opponents uh, into, into monsters. They're not monsters. They're, they're just like us. And but for the grace of God, we'd be there too. And so as we engage the culture in it, remember, we're not fighting monsters. We're not fighting aliens. And keeping that in mind will allow us to be ready to declare the gospel, to declare the good news, to love them, to love mothers, to love doctors, to love those that are in this, tra- in this trade of abortion, love those who, who are picketing, love those who are arguing against these things. But we should very, very surely, strongly fight against this. It doesn't mean that we need to roll over and go, oh, well, they're just like we are. They are just like we are. But we need to be equipped. We need to be prepared. We need to fight strongly and say, no, this is wrong. You must stop. You must not do this. And there are some principles that undergird the topic that I'd like to cover today. And... um, and things I'd also like us to stay away from. The first thing is uh, taking your scriptures there and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So Paul here agrees that we are um, in, a, in, in the context of, of a war, of warfare, and that we have weapons. And notice here that there are two kinds of thoughts. There are thoughts that have been brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and those who have not. There are those thoughts that are obedient to Christ and those that are not. And the question is, are our thoughts about the topic of of abortion, have they been brought into the obedience of Christ? Are we well equipped with the scriptures? Have we submitted ourselves to the whole counsel of God? I don't want to take just a little teeny verse and say that, oh, that's the whole counsel of God. On this one, the scriptures are replete on the principles. uh, I've got... I've easily got six hours of material that I promise I will boil down to two hours. And um, there's, there's plenty, the, the scriptures are not in the least bit silent on this. So we are either thinking in a Christ-like manner or not. And I've seen debates over the years, and I've seen uh, news interviews with people holding signs and picketing and all that stuff. And uh, I've, I've seen somebody had, had a sign with a picture on it. Um, of a birthday party, and all these people are standing around a birthday cake that's got candles on it, and then the seat where the person having their birthday would be was empty. And think of how many birthday parties this unborn child that was murdered uh, will not have. Another one was a wedding, and the father of the bride walking down the aisle, and there's no daughter in his arm. 
uh, think of how many weddings won't, we won't see, or uh, here's a poem written by an unborn child. Well, those things, those things are bad. Those things are unfortunate. Those things are things that would not happen. Those are all good things. But they are, they're on the basis of sentiment, and they're not on the basis of principle. Abortion is not wrong because of missing birthday parties. Abortion isn't wrong because um, uh, weddings that won't happen. And we need to know what are the principles. Sentiment is, is, is good. Sentiment is something God has created and made us to, to um, given us, uh, built us with. Sentiment, sentiment is a great motivator. Sentiment is a great short term. Sentiment will get you to join a march this afternoon. Sentiment will get you to walk around and hand out flyers. Sentiment will make you join a cause and make phone calls. And, but sentiment is not a long-term motivator. Sentiment will not keep you going in the war two years from now. Sentiment is a poor long-term motivator. We don't want to be motivated and guided by sentiment. Not that sentiment's bad, but it's bad as a motivator, a long-term motivator. It's bad when you're trying to win a war. So what we need to have are principles. What are the principles that would undergird our, our, our thoughts that have been brought obedient to Christ on this topic? For sustained activity, you need to know what are the principles. What are the things at play here that are, what are the foundation of this topic? And it's not sentiment. We don't want shallow arguments. We don't want trite arguments. We don't want, we're not trying to win the argument, but we do want to respond with principle. We want to be able to respond and know this is why it's wrong. This is why we don't do that. What are those things that the scripture has for us? The next thing is typically, well, no, for sure, everywhere, you see that the argument is between pro-life and pro-choice. And the, the problem isn't necessarily the saying or the phrase of pro-life, but it is when it's removed from who God is. If we say that we're pro-life, as though life in and of itself was the thing that we're protecting or the thing that we're fighting against, as, as though it by itself had value. As Jeff said in the call to worship, we have value because God made it and placed his image on us. I'm not pro-life because life is valuable in a vacuum. We're pro-life because God, we're pro-human life because God has, has been, is the creator and God has placed his image upon it. So it's, it's not simply enough just to say that I'm, I'm pro all forms of life because... When you're in this discussion, somebody's going to bring up, but hey, aren't you pro-capital punishment? And, and we, we should be, as the law of God lays out. Well, then if, if, if life is sanctified, if life is precious, then how can you be in support of capital punishment? Well, the answer is that we are in support of life, we're in support of capital punishment, but primarily we are pro-law of God. And there are times when the law of God requires uh, somebody's life to be ended, and other times where it, it's wrong for somebody's life to be ended. We're going to see here uh, out of Exodus. There are verses in the scriptures where this is when somebody should be put to death, and this is when somebody shouldn't. 
So just saying pro-life is going to get you into trouble because we, we do want to support the scriptures and where, where it talks about when somebody's life should be ended. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20. Actually, I skipped a verse here. Let's go back to Genesis 9. I'm sorry. Go back to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever's blood, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God, for in the image of God he made man. Here God has declared that he has made image, uh, God in his own image, and therefore the one who sheds his blood, his blood should be shed. We have this, this principle laid out here of blood being shed by the guilty for those who are innocent, whose blood has been shed. And the reason why is because it's an attack on the image of God. Again, it's the, it's the sanctity of life or, the, or the being pro-life or, or pro-choice. We're a pro-law of God. And, we're, and life, life isn't sanctified. Human life isn't sanctified in and of itself. It's, it's valuable because God created it and placed his image on it, but we're in this meth, mess because we need sanctification. We don't possess sanctification and have to be given it, have to be given sanctification. God has to do that for us. And so we do believe that life is, there's sanctity of life. But in a vacuum, apart from the character of God, apart from the word of God, it's not sanctified. We need to be sanctified by him. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. I'll read it again. You shall not murder. In a few verses after this, there will be a section where uh, Moses is given the law and says that if a thief breaks into your house and the homeowner kills the thief, that he's not guilty of bloodshed. That's in Exodus 22. But in this case, he says, you shall not murder. And in that case, it says it's okay to kill him. And that's because there's a distinction between murder and killing. And it has to do with the context, and it has to do with due process. We are told not to murder, and murder is the taking of human life without due process. Now, it's... it's Always important when, when you are reading the scriptures to know that none of the scriptures were written to us, but all of the scriptures were written for us. And you have to ask yourself, who did God give this scripture to? Who was God speaking to? And Moses had been selected as the, as, the, as the civil leader of the people. He became a judge, and his father-in-law, Jesse, told him to add more men because he was getting too tired and hearing all these cases. He was acting as a civil magistrate. And it's not, he's not giving a, uh, a principle in, in other verses here. We'll look in Exodus 21. But there, uh, there are verses that are given to Moses in his capacity as civil magistrate, and there are other verses that are given to the people generally. This is one that is given to us generally. You shall not murder. You shall not end someone's life without due process. Now, that's the distinction between murder and killing. So... Moses was told uh, that he would hear cases, and if there was, uh, if, uh, in, in the process of meeting out fines and punishments, he was given an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, burn for burn, life for life, wound for wound. He was given this thing called the talion. 
the tallion by which he would use to measure fines and punishments. But he was given that in his capacity as a judge. He wasn't given you and I, uh, the, the tallion wasn't given to you and I on how to deal with my neighbor that, um, that harmed me. We don't have this authority to then, on our own, because we're not the civil magistrate, we don't have that authority. It was given to Moses differently. But this one here, you shall not murder. God has told us not to end human life. And specifically, not to end, end the life of the innocent. That's the only way we can understand how do these different verses balance out. How do they balance out with sometimes when it's okay to end a human life and sometimes when it's not okay to end a human life. And there are times when it's wrong not to end a human life. Moses was given the authority to take human life after he completed his, his due process, uh, which was the evaluating of evidence, which was the bringing in of witnesses, hearing the case, determining guilt. And then guilt was, was established, and then the punishment was to be given. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, life for life. Ecclesiastes says that when the sentence for a crime is not swiftly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with all sorts of schemes to do evil. The judges were to determine guilt. The process of due process had to be rigorous. You had to, be, had to have witnesses establishing every point. But once somebody was deemed to be guilty, they were to carry out the fines or the punishments immediately. And if you don't, then what you do is you tempt the people to vigilante justice. When the sentence for a crime is not swiftly carried out, the hearts of men are filled with all manner of evil to do, to do evil. So when you see this civil magistrate uh, not punishing evildoers, not prosecuting criminals, we were just watching this on the news downtown Seattle. Um, there are people who are robbing houses and the police aren't going after them. They're not pursuing them. They don't, they don't have enough room in the courts. They don't have enough room in the jails to prosecute all of them. They don't have enough police officers. And so then when that happens, if, if you saw that happen, what's the first thing that's going to pop into your head? Well, I'll go get him. I know where he is. There was a guy who had his trailer stolen, and he found the trailer, hooked up to a truck, and said, that's my trailer. And he was going to go after the guy, and he thought, well, maybe I better not. But that was his first thought. I'm going to go get him. I'm going to go get my stuff back. I'm going to go avenge my, my son who was killed. I'm going to go whatever you add, add that in there. When the, when the civil magistrate does not carry out fines and punishments swiftly, or when they do it without due process, then what you do is you tempt people to take the law into their own hands. This verse in Exodus chapter 20 was given to you and me. You're not allowed to murder. You're not allowed to murder on your own. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 21. Flip just a chapter over. Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25. If men fight, and this, this is in this section where God is giving Moses this, this um, the principles of how he is to judge and consider, consider trials. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the hus wife's, woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. 
But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay, so in this case that is given to Moses for precedence, in this case you have two men that are fighting, and they're fighting in the presence of a pregnant woman. And they apparently inadvertently, or for whatever reason, they wind up striking the woman, striking her hard enough to give birth prematurely. And then the question is whether there was harm. And some will say, well, this, doesn't talk about, this isn't referring to the harm of the child. Well, of course it is. This, is, this verse hinges on the fact that she's pregnant. If, if her pregnancy is irrelevant, then this is a redundant case. Because there's already cases in place about killing somebody or harming somebody and using the t for Moses to use the Italian. What's interesting here is that at, what's central to this, to this case is the fact that she's pregnant. And it causes her to give birth prematurely. And surely this, the harm applies to both the mother and the child. And notice here that if any harm follows, then Moses was to use the Italian. If the child dies, Life for life, wound for wound. If the mother dies, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. The child is given the same level of civil protection as the mother is. Same, same civil protection as the mother is. There's a lawful putting to death and an unlawful putting to death. Unlawful putting to death is murder. Lawful putting to death is killing. And these men are being negligent. They're being irresponsible. They're, who knows what they're fighting about? It doesn't matter. It's not brought out. What does matter here is the fact that this woman is pregnant with an unborn child. And so it's not as vague as the world wants to make it. The world would like to say, well, but the baby's not viable. Let's just talk about that for a sec. Okay. You have a brand new baby. We've got a bunch of them, right? We've got a bunch of brand new babies. On the day they're born, are they, are they viable? Well, what do you mean by viable? Well, they, they, they can't live on their own. Well, yeah, no baby is going to live on their own. What does a baby need in order to become a senior in high school? Time, nutrition, and protection. And a cell phone. <laughs> well, okay, not a cell phone. What does, the, what does this infant need to become a senior citizen? Time, nutrition, and protection. What does a fertilized cell need to become an, a newborn? Time, protection, and nutrition. To say that it's not viable because it's dependent upon the mothers, it, um, it's, you're dependent almost all your life. It's nonsense. Let's look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. 
You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Interesting how the scripture talks about uh, a child being knitted together. Like uh, God's got a pile of yarn and he's making it into something beautiful, like knitting together that I'm not making an arm and I'm making uh, a leg and making uh, elbows and all those things. This, this process of cell division of mitosis, and we remember those things from biology class, uh, it, it is a process that begins, the, the process begins when an egg is fertilized. And now you stand back and the process works, the process goes. God begins knitting together. It's at that point. If that point doesn't happen, then there's no knitting together. And when God starts knitting together, it is always glorious, regardless of the context in which, on, on how a woman became pregnant. When God creates, it is glorious. When God creates a child, when God creates a human in his own image, it is always glorious. It is always beautiful. Suppose all the nations in the world united on one topic. We're all of one mind, and that is that we are going to use all of our talent, our wealth, our intellectual capital, our medical abilities, all of those things, and we're going to make a baby from scratch. One that grows, that heals, that does all the things that real humans do. We're going to make one from scratch. Never do it. Even the things that we're doing today in artificial intelligence and, um, and, and uh, robotics and things, nowhere near what God does. It's commonplace. He makes babies every single day. Because he makes them every single day, oh, well, there's, there's just another little miracle. There's another little glorious thing happening. We couldn't. We could not do it. We have no way to do it. And so when God creates, it is always glorious. And here, abortion interrupts this process. Abortion ends it. Abortion destroys what God has begun, this beautiful and glorious creation which God has created. Abortion is wrong because it interrupts the miraculous work that God does in creation. We talk about embryos and viability, and, and all of these things are just ways for us to make it easier to not acknowledge that this is a human. The little, little babies that have been born recently, are they walkers? Well, no, not yet. But that's the kind of people they are. That's the kind of animal they are. That's the kind of creature they are. They're humans. Humans are walkers. Give them time, give them food, give them protection, they're going to be walking. But so when we say an embryo or we say a fetus, we're talking about a stage in human development. Human development begins at conception and it ends at death. And 
you'll, you'll look at this clump of cells and go, oh, but it doesn't look like a child. Well, no. Even, even a newborn doesn't look anything like the senior in high school, and the senior in high school looks very different than what it's going to be like when, she, when he or she is 90. But the whole thing, from beginning to end, is part of the process of human development. And abortion destroys this process. It stops this process, and we don't have the authority to stop it through murder. God should be glorified every, every time that a new child is born and celebrated. First principle is that God says, you shall not murder. Abortion violates the law of God. Second principle is that abortion violates the miraculous work of God. I want to talk about difficult cases. Because a lot of times what you'll see is, yeah, well, we're, we're against abortion, um, well, ex except for rape and incest. Now, rape and incest are horrible. Um, they should be capital punishment. They should be capital, uh, um, um, capital crimes. But difficult cases make horrible laws. Difficult cases make bad laws. And what we find often too often is that what we do is we take what's the difficult case and now let's make a law that addresses the difficult case. But that's not how laws should work. Um, uh, I'm in the backyard and I run the lawnmower blade over my foot. And I've got my toe in my hand and I go, Lori, I need help. And we get in the car and we're flying to the, to the hospital um, at 70 miles an hour. I have my little toe right here. And the police officer pulls us over and says, hey, what's up? And I go, hey. <laughs> this. You go, okay, all right, I'll get you to the hospital. All right. Speed limit was 35, we were going 70. This is not a true story. This is, this is just a, a pretend case, right? Okay. All right, let's get that out of the way. Yeah. Did I break the law? Well, yeah, I did. Should I, should I be punished for it? Well, that's for a judge to decide. How, how, how plausible is it that I could have a medical emergency and want to get to the hospital fast? Well, probably pretty plausible. Should we change the speed limit to 70? No. You pass a law that covers the majority of the cases and you allow the courts to interpret the difficult ones. There are times when cases are difficult. You don't make a law to address the difficult ones. And what we're trying to do is say, oh, how many abortions that actually occur are the result of rape or incest? It's a minuscule number compared to those that are the result of convenience. You pass laws that cover the majority of the cases and you allow the courts to interpret the difficult ones. Because difficult cases make horrible laws. So let's, let's like I said, this is a horrible topic to be talking about, but we need to address the whole counsel of God. Let's suppose that uh, a woman gets pregnant because of a rape. A horrible thing. Horrible. How many people are involved? Well, there's the, there's the criminal, there's the woman, and there's the child. How many are guilty of committing a crime? Well, there's uh, well, the criminal. How many are innocent? the mom and the child. Why would the crime of a criminal give one of the innocent the right to end the life of the other innocent? 
You don't punish the innocent for the crimes of the guilty. Now, carrying that child is going to be horrendous. It would be difficult. It would be, I, I can't, ladies, you know what I'm talking about. I, I, I'm not there. But I know that it would be horrible to have to carry that child. But not as horrible as murdering the child. Not as horrible as murdering the child. God does not give us the permission to murder a child in that kind of a, a criminal case. You don't, you don't murder the innocent based on the crimes of the guilty. And we don't want our legislators to make uh, difficult cases be the basis for passing laws. We have some other modern excuses today. So with in vitro fertilization, you'll, you'll wind up fertilizing a number of, number of eggs and having these um, pre-embryonic humans that are frozen and stored and, because people are trying to get pregnant. And you wind up with all these fertilized eggs, these, these humans. Those fertilized eggs are humans. Are they walkers? Yes. Are they talkers? Yes. Are they male or female? Yes. Given time, protection, and nutrition. But that process is slowed down with the freezing. But the problem is that now science has, has come up with a way to use those embryos and help people get better. Help people get better. So stem cell research. Um, now we can use our own stem cells or stem cells from, from uh, uh, cord blood or um, stem cells from aborted children. And people can have cartilage regrown. They can have all sorts of things happen. And, and, and they go, well, yeah, but look at, these, look at these people who had this disease and now they don't. See how much good can come out of abortion? The fact that God is able to give us medical capital to take something horrible and make it something good does not justify the horrible. The modern excuses of stem cell research is not a, not a basis for promoting abortion. And then there's the hands off my body. Yes, the child is in your body. But the child has a different DNA. Child can have a different blood type. Child can have a different gender. What constitutes a, a different human, being different from one other human? Give me anything else that makes it different uh, that's, that's not more profound than DNA, blood type, and gender. The child has the same right to say, hands off my body. The decision not to get pregnant in 99% of the cases happened months ago. The children can say the same thing, hands off my body. I'm a distinct human. I'm residing in you, mom. I'm residing inside of you. And I need time, protection, and nutrition. I need those things in order to become a teenager or any other part of human development. We get into situational ethics. Well, in that case, 
the abortion was okay because look at how much good came out of it. I, I, I remember talking to someone about um, two divorces that this lady had had and she talked about how wonderful the children were that came out of it and all the good that happened as a result of the divorces and the divorces were because of adultery. And, and she's saying, yeah, even, even though it was a bad thing, uh, good things came out of it. Right, give glory to God, that's wonderful. But it doesn't mean that we're now going to say adultery is not a, not a, crime, not a sin. The fact that God brings good things out of the death of Christ doesn't mean that the Jews and Herod were not guilty of murder. They were guilty of murder. We're not going to go around and start promoting adultery or rape or any of these things or incest or whatever it may be. Just because God brings something good out of it does not justify the crime or the sin. Let's look at another one. Uh, Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 36 through 39. It says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood, and they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. You remember that um, when uh, the Lord was talking to Moses about going in and taking the land of Canaan, he said, I'm not, we're not going to go now because the sin, of the sin of the Amorites is not at its full measure. That God held them until it was time, until the right time for them to go in, and then they destroyed all the cities in Canaan. Don't, don't feel sorry for the Canaanites. They, they had the wickedest of practices. And then that's why it's horrible to see Israel doing the same thing as we saw with Manasseh, that they were doing worse than what the Canaanites did, that they were not a better people, they were not better humans. But what I want to point out here is in the sacrificing of their children and their daughters and sons and shedding innocent blood, the land was polluted. The land was polluted. The land was defiled. We want to think that, oh, what's going on at Planned Parenthood doesn't really affect me. They're a mile away, doing different things. In God's eyes, this is happening on our land. This is defiling our land. That murder, abortion, violates the law of God and defiles the land. Now, I am... I am Amazed and tremendously thankful that Roe versus Wade was overturned. But abortion is still not illegal in our country. But let's say, they turned it over to the state. So let's say that all the states agree now that, okay, we're not going to allow any abortions in our land. There are 63,500,000 abortions that have happened since Roe v. Wade was, tra was, was, um, was put as law. Made his law in 1973. 63 million. If today the law was overturned and it was illegal in every single state, what do we do about the land? What do we do about the curse and the defilement of our land? Well, the scriptures say that the only way you, you cleanse the land was by the shedding of blood. And this is where some people get 
really wacky. They started bombing abortion clinics and they start, you know, sniping abortion doctors or mothers who do. Well, no, we don't have that authority to do that. We don't have the authority to do that. Look at Numbers 35. Numbers 35, verse 31. He says, moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to a city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. The shedding of innocent blood defiled their land. You know, it reminds me of what Jason Farley mentioned at our family camp, when the, that thorns and thistles were this symbol that represented the curse on the land. The land was going to be harder to work for Adam and that he would have thistles and thorns and, and, uh, and weeds and all manner of things, making his work harder. And then they made a crown of thistles and thorns and placed it on Christ's head, as though his death also cleansed the land. That he took the curse of the land upon himself. The next reason why abortion is wrong is because it brings the wrath of God upon us and defiles our land. What are we going to do about the 63 million innocent lives that have been, their blood that has been shed? I do want, I do want all the laws to be overturned. Totally. We're going to continue praying for that until God brings it. But we don't, we don't have a legislative problem. We don't have a political problem. We have a sin problem. Changing the laws isn't going to help the land, it's not, going to it's not going to help the blood that's on our hands. Abortion violates the law of God because he says do not murder. Abortion violates the law of God because it ends the miraculous work that he's doing. Abortion is wrong because it brings the wrath of God upon our country. And so what do we do? What are we going to do? Our land is defiled. And it says here in Numbers that uh, no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. And thankfully, someone has shed his blood. The answer, the only answer we have, we don't need a political answer. We don't need any, any sort of new laws to solve this problem. What we need to do is declare why abortion is wrong be ready and equipped to also give them the good news. The good news is good because the bad news is so bad. And there's nothing that we can do to take away this bloodshed that is on our, on our shoulders, on our land, in our country, that our laws are trying to protect. It is a horrific thing that in our country people are fighting to protect the right to kill children. It's unimaginable. Now, it's possible that some of you here 
have participated in or actually had an abortion. And, and that's a horrific thing. But as I said, the answer is really, really good news. It's good news that Christ died even for that kind of a sin. Christ died for that. And he took away the penalty completely. It is the answer. Christ is the answer. The world doesn't have an answer for this. The world, the world doesn't have anything to offer. But the church does. The church that's equipped with the gospel, equipped with the word of God, equipped by how God has left his word for us. That's the great news. That his son died on the cross to pay the penalty for all those sins. And you may still be struggling with it. It wouldn't be surprising if you were. And if you are, then let's talk about it. Let's go to the word together. Let's have a Bible study on it. And then believe. When you find out what the principles are, when you find out what God says about it, believe. Believe and rejoice. There is no other good news for us. It is the best news. It is wonderful news. And then let's join together as a church. Let's continue to support the things that are fighting against this. Let's continue to pray against it. Let's continue to talk to your neighbor. Answer the questions of your neighbor. Neighbor's going to have all... Oh, well, what, if he, what if he disagrees with me? He's going to. Most likely he's going to. Your neighbor's going to disagree. Or maybe your neighbor agrees, but doesn't, just thinks it's icky. A lot of people just think, oh, well, that's horrible. I've, I've seen the pictures. It's, oh, it's awful. That's why I'm against it. Well, no, abortion is not wrong because it's icky. It's because it violates the law of God and it's murder. And God has said, don't murder. And when we shed innocent blood, it defiles our land. And it stops the miraculous work that God does when he, when he uh, creates a glorious thing, when he creates another human. Don't be embarrassed of the word of God either. People say, well, I, I, I don't believe your book. Well, that's okay. That doesn't make it untrue. That doesn't make it not the word of God. Everybody has an ultimate infallible source of truth. Everybody does. If you were to go drill down somebody, well, why do you think that's true? Okay, well, why do you think that that's true? Why do you think that's authoritative? And what you'll finally, if you work backwards far enough, normally what you'll do is you'll wind up having them say, well, that's just what I believe. If you ask them, if you push far enough in somebody's logical argument, how do you know that's true? How do you know that's true? Well, where did that authority come from? Well, that's just, that's just how I feel. I believe that. So they are their ultimate infallible source of truth. Ours are the scriptures. We didn't write them. God did. And this is what God says about it. And I'm trying to, pers I'm trying to keep the wrath of God from coming down upon our country. I'm trying to keep this horrible scourge from flourishing in our land. And tyranny doesn't last very long. If we were to pass all these laws and outlaw abortion, if the Spirit of God has not gone through our land, if the Spirit of God has not drawn many, many, many into the kingdom of God, tyrannical laws don't stand. Eventually, they'll get overturned again. And so then it's just a matter of, okay, who gets in the White House? And how many uh, Supreme Court justices retire or pass away or whatever that he get, the new president gets to a point? It's not, the answer isn't, who'd you vote for? That, that, that's, that's not our answer. It's not a matter of do we have a 
supermajority in the, in the Supreme Court or not. I'm thankful for the system we have. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for it. I'm glad that we have what we have, but I'm far more thankful for the scriptures, for the law of God. That's how we know. And the good news is that Christ died for all of this. Christ died. That's our answer, is we need to proclaim the gospel to the doctors, to the mothers, to those who are um, in, the, in the movement, in the, in the fight, in the, in the battle, fighting for the right to destroy their children. And so let's, let's just be of one mind. Let's sharpen one another. Let's continue to talk about it, and let's get better equipped and be emboldened because we know what the principles of God are, and we're not embarrassed of the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, that you've seen fit to preserve it, that even this morning that we could read it and be equipped by it, that we could uh, understand what it is is your mind and how how we would operate. Father, I pray that you would hear our prayers, hear our prayers offered in Jesus' name, that the scourge of abortion would be driven far from our land, that the blood of Christ would be sufficient to cleanse our land, cleanse the people, and that we would be a nation who calls upon you, calls you, Lord, who worships you, who is grateful for your mercy and kindness to us. Lord, that's what we look forward to, and we're thankful that we know how the story ends, that Christ wins. What a wonderful thing, Father. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for these things. And uh, guard us and equip us, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.